This is Women in Justice, and I'm your host, Dr. Shante James. In this episode, we dive headfirst into the complex and multifaceted realm of injustice. But here's the twist. We're not just scratching the surface. We're delving deep into the heart of the matter. Injustice knows no bounds. It infiltrates various areas of our lives, leaving a trail of questions, concerns, and stores in its wake. What makes this episode truly special is our guest speaker, who is about to put her own spin on this all-important topic. Let me now turn the mic over to her as she introduces herself and her work as it relates to the podcast. Yes. Um, my name is Dr. Iris Wright. Um, I am a serial entrepreneur, author, speaker. Um, I um, I like to create change, so I'm a I'm a I'm an action taker. I like to create change, so almost everything I do, I'm creating some type of. I'm changing up some things that I didn't like or didn't see that it was right or correct. So um, that's kind of who I am. I'm a mother, wife. Uh, now I got um, three grandbabies. We just had a new grandbaby over the weekend. Congratulations. So, um, but that's kind of what I do. Okay. She's very much downplaying um, her work. <laughs> I'm going to have her officially say her name, too. You didn't say your name. Oh, um, my Dr. Iris Wright. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit how you got started. Why don't we start from there? Um, how I got started in entrepreneurship. Yes. Okay. Um, well, I moved here, I think, December of 2017. Um, started working here. Um, the wage was very, very low here. So we found ourselves working all the time. Um, I've always wanted to, you know, be my own boss, be my own business um, owner, um, work for myself pretty much. And um, I tried different avenues of jobs first and kind of was like, oh, no, this is not for me. I still can't find what I'm looking for. And even if you find the perfect job, it's like, are they treating you the way you should be treated? Um, so that was my whole thing. And um, I ended up reading Steve Harvey's book, Jump. Um, I ended up quitting my job right before the pandemic. So I was a little scared because then I quit my job and then the pandemic kind of came. <laughs> but I've been um, working ever since and building. So it's been one of the best um, achievements I've ever done. So I'm kind of glad I quit my job. And in you deciding to quit your job and moving forward, especially during that pandemic, what avenue specifically did you take? For the, um, you know, the listeners who don't know that much about your work. Well, um, our first company is called Rights Virtual Services. And what I did is I took all the skills that of things that I've already was doing that I knew how to do. And I kind of built it into uh, one business and made it um, with multiple streams of income inside of it. So we did taxes. Um, I have a call center. So we we have like. Um, 22 companies that we do customer service for. So I was hiring people in our call center. Um, I did our notary. I did a lot of work for the title work for title signing. Um, little did I know the pandemic was going to come and that title, um, the notary 
and long signing agent, they call it, was going to go up high, you know, go real fast and get really, really busy. So that ended up taking over right during the pandemic. Um, but that's, I kind of just put everything in that I enjoy doing, building at multiple streams of income. Then I took the income I made from there to save it, to build my home care company. So it was like um, from two in the morning to five in the morning every day, I was up writing policies and getting things ready for the home care agency, going over the state qualifications, getting everything done with the application. And then in 2021, we opened our home care company. Um and we are the name of that company was Karen Hart Senior Living, um, which um, it was I, was I was very passionate about it after 13 years of working in home care, seeing how seniors were being neglected and being treated um, and also seeing how the workers were being treated, because it's like a. Um, a lot of people, when you go into the hospitals or nursing homes, I want to say more long-term care, um, some hospitals, but more long-term care, you see us working on the floor and sometimes families fail to realize that you only see one or two people on this floor and there's like 30 or 40 patients on this floor. So families often like to fuss at the staff because things are not being done or they feel like their parent or loved one was being neglected when really in our reality, we don't have enough staff on the floor. I can't take care of 30 people. You know, I can't take care of 40 people and I can't keep going back to take care of one special person because all 30 of my clients are special. But sometimes in long-term care, um, we are told that the clients, that family comes on a regular basis, we need to make, pay very close attention to. So that means if I have 30 patients and I have these three people, their children comes and see them. That means all the other 27 of my clients are going to end up being neglected or going without something because they want me to focus on those three. Um, so I didn't like that. Um, so it was a, I couldn't, it was hard for me to even rest, you know, go to work. I kept thinking of things that I forgot or may not have done. It was nerve wracking. So the home care business was uh, very much needed um, as a necessity to me. So um, can you tell us, because um, I kind of feel like um, I know what you're talking about, but I just want to make sure it's clear for the audience. With the home care services, what service do you specifically provide? All right. So um, we're the only home care agency in the state of Virginia that has technology involved in our company. So we provide um, a CNA, um, CNAs can go out. We have I call it like a virtual and hybrid model is what we're building. Uh, we have some clients that don't need an aid, but they still need attention. They still need their medications. They still need to be taking their blood sugars and different things. So we have technology and, um, that we put into the homes and we help monitor to make sure those things are happening. Um, we have some other clients that may need a, a, a electronic caregiver. So we do have electronic caregiver where we will place an LCD monitor or laptop inside the home. We program the electronic caregivers to do surveys, assessments, making sure medications being taken. If they need their blood pressure, blood sugar done, we connect our, our technology to the LCD monitor so we can actually get reports from our electronic caregiver that this is being done in the proper alerts. And our clients don't have to do anything is pretty much effortless because they um if um our electronic caregiver asks them a question they just speak it to her and then she reports it right to us so we're able to still watch and make sure that things are getting done even if we're not there and then we have the hybrid model to where um 
we have aides that go in there a certain part of the day. Um, now, um, home care can sometimes be expensive, especially if you have someone there 24 hours a day. So with the hybrid model, even if the aide's there during the daytime, we still letting our clients know that we're not leaving you. I'm still monitoring you even in the evening. And I'm still going to make sure you have your meals. I'm still going to make sure you take your medications. I'm still going to break any barriers that I see that is need for each client. Every client is different. Um, so... We created that and we're building a virtual world. So now we're going to, as we grow in our virtual world, um, hope, I'm hoping in 2024, we'll be to the place where we have activities going on seven days a week virtually. We Sometimes we do virtual bingo. We play a kahoot. We do virtual paint nights. I feel like social is very, very uh, important when it comes to a senior being home and teaching them how to use electronics um, to be able to do something positive and good. Um, sometimes seniors are put out there that they're scared of technology. Well, the world is full of technology, so they have to learn. Someone has to teach them. So sometimes I do lunch and learns. I go to different seniors and teach them how to use their mobile devices, teach them how we can save their life using those mobile devices. Um, so that's kind of what we do. We're building um, we're building the future of home care, um, how I like to see it. So in this shift of building, it sounds like to me a community. How do you see the dynamics of a female client being different from their male counterpart? Or are they similar in your mind? Well, uh, men are a little different because men are used to being masculine. A lot of them are used to being the charge person, taking control. They want to, you know, they're used to fixing things. They think that I don't need this. I don't want no one in my home. I'm okay. You know, they're hard to get through. So, you know, with the technology, it makes it a little easy for us to get to them a little bit because I'm saying, oh, we don't have to put nobody in your home. We're not your babysitter because some of them think you just, you know, that they're baby babysitters. We're not your babysitter. We want to help you. And I tell our clients to look at us like a PayPal um, or a pen pal, sorry, a pen pal. We're still doing something for you. We're still communicating. We're still giving you them social skills. We're still there for you. We're just not present in person, right? Um, so I tell them to look at us like a pen pal if I need to. Women, they're more, um, we're more listeners and we're more um, observant of the big picture. So we know that there's health issues and different things that could help us. So women are more open to having some type of assistance before something bad happens, right? Um, because our agency focused on independence. So I kind of go after the client before before they actually decline. I think that we can save people money um, and have people live longer and more independently and out of that nursing home if we just catch them before they decline. Um, seniors can always tell us when they, they're declining. So sometimes, for instance, um, a lot of our clients, their daughters and sons and stuff are not here. You know, they're somewhere else. They talk to dad on the phone. Dad sounds great today. You know, he is doing great. They don't know that dad just forgot his having taken his medicine all day. It hasn't eaten. Right. They don't know that dementia is coming on, too, because a person in um, a stage one dementia, they can sell very well um, fluent. They can talk to you about things, too. But if you don't know what to look for to spot those things to say, hold on, something's not right. What dad is saying here, if you're not educated on that, you will never know that dad is now in stage one dementia, right? Or they even think that dad needs to go to the doctor because something's wrong here. Um, so 
a lot of times they start declining because we don't know. We think dad's fine. He's home by himself. He's making his own meals. He's doing all of this. They don't know what is really going on back there. So that's where we come in at. We want you before then because we want to be able to keep track. We want to be able to see when changes are happening. Um, some of our clients, we're able to see changes. Like one, um, for instance, we had a client. He lost his eyesight in his left eye. He has dementia, so he couldn't really tell us what was going on. But by us asking questions and saying, hey, how was your day? And um, we do a fall risk assessment on them daily, asking them questions to see if they have fell or if they almost fell, what they think caused it. And he happened to tell us that I went in to take a shower and I almost fell. I didn't fall. I, I, you know, I picked myself up. But for some reason, I didn't see something on this other side. That gave me the cue to call our partner who's a skilled agency and say, hey, this is what my client was telling me. We was able to get skilled to look at him. We find out and sent, and we took him to the eye doctor because we was thinking, it's, um, you know, the skilled lady saying, hey, is something going on with his vision? So we took him to the eye doctor, found out that he lost his eyesight probably six months before in his left eye. So on things on that side, he was not able to see then we were able to get skilled in there to help him maneuver the work around that, you know, so he can still get around and still be independent. Um, had we not caught that in time, he might would have been home, try to get in the shower or something and end up falling in the shower or hurting himself. Or A might would have called, found him passed out somewhere um, where he didn't hurt himself. So it's important to have things in place before they happen. And a lot of us are moving. And sometimes we fail to realize that those things are very important, just like life insurance. It's important to get that before you die. Because right. after you die, it's too late. Sure. So. It's the same thing with home care and and, uh, and care for uh, our bodies and our mental and everything else as well. So it seems like to me you've identified a niche that there's a need. So being a female within this environment, what barriers have you had to overcome to one? So people know that there's a need for this this product and service and then also to move the business forward. Um, well, I think one barrier is that um, I had to, I'm an all-private pay agency. I'm not going to really say it's a barrier. We're growing and we're doing good, um, but we don't take insurance um, because, especially like Medicaid, one in Virginia, Medicaid don't pay very well and they pay you whenever they feel like paying you. Um, two, um, Medicaid covers it after you decline. They want you sick before they approve you for it, which is weird. Which is interesting you know? to me. So I, I love the fact that you're pointing out this is part of the reality of healthcare. Yeah. Like, why do I need to get bad off sick? Why can't I, you know, why can't I build myself? Why can't I stay independent? Why can't I still be happy even though things are going on with my body? Um, More so of a proactive thing. model sounds like to me that you're you're advocating for. Yeah. So, um, so we don't, we don't take it. Um, now I do advocate on long-term care insurance because just like life insurance, we don't want to pay for it. Right. But, um, 95% of my clients have long-term care insurance, meaning that long-term care insurance take companion care. So my clients don't have to decline before they get help. All right. Two, they pay me, the insurance reimburse them. Some of them being reimbursed 100% to a certain um, point. 
So all the packages are different depending on the package that they have. Some of them get reimbursed 80%. Some getting 100%. But they're able to get the care that they need. And they don't have to pick and choose. Oh, I need a Medicaid agency provider. They can go to whatever provider they want, pay for their care, send the invoice to them, and they get that money reimbursed. Um, so... Um, as I'm in here learning more and more and more about the different um, healthcare insurances and the different things that can help our clients, because sometimes we say, oh, we don't want to pay, you know, pay for this. We really don't need it right now. But the one thing that we may not think that we need right now, we may actually need, um, we need to look into getting it. What if we have it in place already? So when we do need it, we have everything there. We don't have to go get it. You know, um, healthcare is one of those things that we need to make sure we have things in place um, for us. Um, you know, I tell people all the time, even wills and um, healthcare um, directives and different things of that nature. Um, no one wants to think about dying, but the fact is you're going to die. So if you have children or grandchildren, have things in order so they don't have to guess if you want to be on life support. Um, you know, have things in order. Talk to them. Let them know how you want things that, you know, if certain things you don't want. Make sure your hospitals have a copy of your advanced directives and stuff. So when you're in the hospital, they'll know what you want. So it's a lot, um, a lot with healthcare that people should really um, tap into and, and get educated on. Okay. Uh, it's only a 30 minute show. So I feel like I <laughs> got to shift you a little bit, but I know yeah. that you have the book entitled Injustice. So I wanted to give you the platform to first start, uh, talk, tell us about the book and then also what got you and uh, what inspired you to be part of and kind of pull this together. Cause it's six authors associated with the book, if I'm not mistaken. So how you kind of brought everybody together and the process. Yep. Um, so um, January 2nd of this year, I decided to tell my story um, and I've been holding it in for 20 years. I've never really talked about it. Um, but I, I kind of thought that I was okay, if you know what I mean. Like, I closed it up. So I'm thinking, hey, it's okay. And it took a while for me to realize that a closed wound can reopen, but a healed wound, even if it comes to surface, it's not really bothering you because it's he you're healed um, from it. So I found out real quick I had some work that needed to be done. Um, I ended up telling my story and getting a lot of messages and, and, and things of people and, and talking to people about their stories, um, about what they're going through and how they've been living with it. Um, so um, when I was 18 years old, I was accused of a crime I didn't commit. The crime was against my daughter. Um, me and her father had break, broken up. Um, they did everything possible to steal my daughter away from me. Um, I picked my daughter up from their care. And once I got my daughter to our destination, I found sores between her legs. I'm the one that took her to the doctor. The doctor told me she had impetigo disease. Um, the family did not believe that. Um, so the family went above and beyond, got the police involved. My daughter was taken from me. Um, I eventually got arrested. Um, I, um, I lost my job because I was in healthcare at that time. Um, my life was kind of stripped from me. Um, because of that, it took me almost five years to get my daughter back. Um, I had to go to trial for it. Um, 
at trial, I did get a lot of the charges dropped, but they still ended up, I still ended up having to take a um, Robinson plea for one charge, which was misdemeanor child endangerment. Didn't want to take it, but at the time I didn't have an attorney. Um, and I also just had a newborn baby at home that needed me to come back home. So I had to do what I had to do. Um, that kind of um, injustice bothered me. Um, it it affected me in so many ways. It affected me how I raised my children. Um, it affected me with trust of the people that I were around. Um, it affected me um, being closed offish, even when my daughter was gone emotionally, um, because me the younger years of my kids, we didn't take a lot of pictures and different things um, because she wasn't there. Um, I believe one day. I had visitation and um, me and the boys got, took a picture and she happened to see and ask, where was I? You know, so after that, I didn't feel real comfortable anymore doing certain things with the kids because I felt like she needed to be there. Um, mentally, um, there's a point in my life where I lost three years. I didn't even know you can lose three years, um, but I had to get some counseling and I kept telling her I was a certain age and she kept digging deep into it. And then she finally told me, where did the last three, asked me, where, do, where did the last three years go? Because this is your actual age. You know, where did it go? Um, so I kind of stayed in survival mode, always fighting and moving and didn't even realize I lost those three years. I don't even know if I have them back because I'm sure even when I'm telling my story, I have to go through the things that I wrote through police reports and stuff to make sure that I'm given um, the most accurate time frames of things. Um, because I kind of lost a part of me. Um, so I don't think people really know um, how deep, because even going through it, people you say, oh, you, it's, it's over now, get over it. Um, you can, How can you tell someone to get over something? Um, but people tend to do that when they have an experience or they think they have an experience, um, some type of injustice. So in this project, I started the Injustice Movement. I wanted to be able to help other people heal um, I wanted to be, them to be able to use their voice to tell their story and to empower them that their voices need to be heard. Uh, we need to keep talking about it because the things that happen to us is not fair. But if we continue to just brush it underneath the rug, not talk about it, not educate about it, no one's going to hear. So even if there is someone out there that can help change some laws or move some things around, they're not going to continue um, to hear you. So we need to keep on using the more the more voices, the more powerful we are to be able to create some type of change. And also we're helping our next generation um, of people um, so they don't have to go through it. We're helping our children, our grandchildren. You know, they still have to live here when we're gone. Um, and we deserve to be able to show other people, too, that they can evolve. You know, um, sometimes we get stuck and we think this is it. Society then told me who I was. I'm a criminal. I'm an abuser. This is what I do. And no one, I can't do anything. I'm not going to be able to get a job. I'm not going to be able to build anything. These are things that's running through our minds when we go out here because people are going to look at us like we're this person that the court people, the people said we were, you know. Um, so I wanted to be able to open those doors and have those hard conversation and also let people know that even though you did experience this injustice, it's time to heal and it's time to go ahead and evolve because when God allows you to go through things, it's not because, um, that you wasn't meant, you wasn't supposed to be here. It may be the other way around. 
it may be purpose for you, your mission to create some type of change in that in that area. Um, so and kind of look at things in a more positive light. And sometimes we, we can't see that part until we start the healing process on, on ourselves. OK, so uh, let me first encourage everyone to go get the book. Um, and how can they get the book? Um, they can go to our website, Irish, um, Iris, I-R-I-S dash right, W-R-I-G-H-T dot com. Um, we do have our book inside of um, Barnes and Nobles, Newport News, Barnes and Nobles in Hampton and Paperback Inc. in Newport News as well. OK, so let me encourage you to get the book. And I um, so in, you know, trying to make sure that they get the book, but telling a little bit more about the story. Let me ask you a couple of questions to get some clarification Okay, um, in your process of going through the legal system. Did you feel like there was just a lack of knowledge available to you or a lack of resources? Or did you foresee that they were there, but you just you just didn't know about them? Well, I think with me being 18 years old, starting my life, I was kind of like naive at first because I'm thinking like I didn't do anything wrong. So. Um, they can't find me guilty. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm I not, do. you know, so you're kind of thinking about that. And then when it actually happens, you're like, oh, man, this is real. This is going to happen, you know. Um, and then the way you're being treated. I mean, I know at one point I was in a room and they showed me they took a microscope and went inside of my daughter's sores because they tried to create a story that I burned her. And say, what does she do so bad to make you do this to her? Were you, you know, was she being bad? Was she too loud? You know, they were just making up these things. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know. And at the time I found that I was pregnant with my second with my oldest son. So I'm like already like in that emotional state. And then I have to deal with this. And I know I didn't do anything wrong. At some point, I'm thinking like, man, is something mentally wrong with me? Like what happened, <laughs> you know? So you're kind of in a state of shock, I think, at the beginning. And then as I'm moving on um, and having to deal with the pregnancy now, because I had to give birth to my son early. So if you have, you know, um, my, my book, Injustice, My Story, Full Story, will be out and I go a little bit more detail into it. Um, but um, I had to deliver him early because I started hemorrhaging um, and the doctor was afraid for me to hold him. Um, to hold him. So I, I didn't even take him to... Um, to term. To term. Yeah. yeah. I didn't take him to term at all. And, um, you know, it was and then I had to move in another state so they wouldn't take him. And then I had to get him situated first and then go back to my state where we were at in order to get my daughter back. Um, because um, when we went to trial, the judge had told me ways that I could get my daughter back. But I had to work with the state of Delaware because I moved to the state of Maryland to protect my other son. The state of Delaware could not cross the line to help, you know, to do anything in the state of Maryland. So after I got him situated and got, you know, custody order and everything done, I was able to move back to Delaware so I can work with the state to get my daughter back. And even then it was still um, journeys because my daughter's family then knew I could get her back. So they ended up moving and taking her to this place and that place and filing papers on me in other states. And, you know, it was just a whole drawn out thing. So then it took a while for us to get jurisdiction to get them to bring her back to Delaware so we can go to court. Um, so it took me about four years walking in that court, hearing him say, we have jurisdiction that got to bring her back here. 
so we can go to court um, so I can get my daughter back. Um, and then I had to file court papers every 90 days for them to tell me we don't have jurisdiction. We don't have jurisdiction. We don't have jurisdiction. So it was a lot to take in emotionally um, with my story. And um, statistics say that 71 percent of women lose their children for no crime at all. Um, so that's a high number, 71 percent of, of, of a, a child being taken out of a good home, of a home that loved them. Um, and in my case, it was my daughter's um, family. And my they actually, when I got my daughter back, it was like deja vu because my daughter came back to me with a sexual transmitted disease. So now I don't just have a seven-year-old coming back to her mom. I have a seven-year-old that's been broken that came back to me and I lost, they took something from me. Like again, because that's my job was to protect her. So someone took that from me. And that was another barrier that I had to work through because um, child molestation and rape was deep um, for me because my mom was abuse of that. And so we were always talked to and go had to go through things in childhood. So I knew that was very important. So I wanted to make sure that I protect all my children from that. So that was kind of ripped away from me. Um, so that was important. So um, in the book, you'll see different stories. My story, we have another author, her son was killed. Um, the person ran a red light. The person was in charge for his murder because he was riding on a dirt bike. So I guess it's against the law um, in Virginia to ride on a dirt bike in the road. So they did not charge the woman. So we have one that, you know, that was in her healing stage and how she's evolving from that. We have another author in there. She was fighting for her brother. He's been incarcerated for 26 years. Uh, we have another author that uh, which I kind of knew her um, from back home and encouraged her to be part of this book. Um, she was raped, beaten, held captive. She quit school. Um, she was on drugs. She sold drugs and prostituted. Um, and um, now she runs a mental health clinic, helping people that going through similar situations of drug addiction and all that kind of stuff. She went back to school, got her diploma, her associates, her bachelor's, she's down in the master's program. So I wanted to just show people that even though people go through all of these things, you know, especially with our justice system, that you can heal and you can evolve and you can take what you've learned through the process to help someone else. Okay. Um, I feel like there was a lot there to unpack. Um, <laughs> and I... <laughs> I know you have another book coming out, so I'm just trying to give you the space for that. But yes. I guess I just want to make sure and make sure um, it's clear for the audience. Can you do me a favor and define injustice first? Let's take that step. OK, um, so injustice, um, when I'm talking about injustice, it don't necessarily have to always be with the justice system, even though a lot of it is. Um, it don't have any color in it either. So that was another thing. Um you know, people go through bad things. It could be with the system. It can be in your family. It could be in the school system. It could be in your church. Whatever hurt you and took you to the path where you were um, in pain or felt captive or felt like it had a hold on your life. Um, that's what I mean by injustice, um, because you didn't ask for it. It was given to you. It wasn't something that you went looking after. Or you didn't yourself. Someone put you in that situation and things were stripped from you. 
um, that's what I mean by injustice when I'm talking about the book in a whole. Okay. And then when you say you lost the three years, what three years? Was it three years from you being 18 or three years currently? Because I know everyone will email me and say, why didn't you ask that question? (laughs) Well, I think um, at the time when I started going to counseling, I was in my 20s. I was probably like 22, 23, something like that. And um, or something like that. I was in my 20s and um, I think I kept saying I was 23 or something. And then she said no you're 20. I think I was 26 or something, somewhere in between there. So I'm not sure if I got the ages right, but she's like, you know, you keep telling me you're 23, you know, where the other three years go? Cause you're 26. Okay. So it's a process of dealing with it. So your journey and healing, is it? Yes. Okay. All right. So uh, just cause we're getting close to time. um, We always like to offer our listeners just some space to kind of say, What do you see, especially um, when we're looking at injustice, the first few steps of the healing process? What would you suggest? Because it sounds like injustice is kind of weaved through everything that you do. Um, So what do you see as the first few steps to get to that healing? Well, one, I want to say get comfortable with yourself, looking at yourself, knowing that you're worth healing and you're worth grace. I mean, that you're beautiful or handsome or whatever. Um, sometimes when we go through that, that was the biggest thing for me with my confidence. Cause I didn't feel like a good person anymore. I didn't feel like I was beautiful anymore. Um, I didn't feel like I was deserving of anything, love, anything, um, at this point. Um, So depending on your situation, you could feel differently. You have to get comfortable with yourself and know and have grace and know that you are important and that you deserve to be loved and that you are a beautiful person. So you have to just come to grips with that. Um, And then two, identify that you need healing, right? We can't get healing if we think we okay. We have to first announce that I am not okay. Something is wrong, right? So even if you think that you need counseling, because some people think that counseling is you got to be like um, psychotic or something like, no. Get someone with some expertise, not just book expertise, but some counselors been through some things, you know, so that can actually give you that the correct information and help you process what you're feeling and what you're going through to be able to deal with that information as well. So um, counseling, you know, I did do for a while. Um, Third, I want to say, believe in yourself, get your confidence back up, you know, believe in yourself. What makes you feel good? Where is that place? Is there a place? Is it something you like to do? For me, it was writing. Um, you know, I needed that push. I, I presume because I wrote like a several times I end up ripping it up and burning it up. And then this last time I just put the pen and just never stopped writing. I just kept going. So find that relief. What makes you relief uh, to be able to say, hey, OK, this is what I'm feeling. And then your next um, thing is to look at your overall situation. Don't look at it with a lens like, what could I have done better? Did I do something wrong here? Because you you don't have to be the victim. You know, I don't want you to be the victim of it. Um, I always say I'm an injustice survivor. But we take a look at that and we leave it alone. We pray about it. We let God say, hey, I'm giving you this pain back. 
right? Because we're going into a world of happiness now. So we're only speaking positive things here and we're going to go through this healing process. And I'm going to um, tr entrust in you that you helped me through it because my relationship with God is one that I'm still working on in this journey because through the whole injustice process, I forgot about religion. I just gave it up. I didn't believe in him anymore. And I talk about it in one of my books. Um, so I didn't believe that he loved me. I thought he forgot about me. Why would he allow me to go through this? You know? So when you're in pain and going through it, you don't know why he, uh, things happen. You got all these million things in your mind and growing up as a young woman and just getting out there in the world. I had, I was still naive. I still called the person that centered me into this corner, which is my kid's grandmom. I still called her mom through this process. So, and someone had to bring that to me, your mother wouldn't do that to you, you know? So it's a lot of things. And if you notice any, any type of thing that's messing with your mental with that, seek help or have that confidant person that's near you, the one that's not telling you, get over it. The one that's actually listening to you and say, hey, I'm gonna go through this with you. I'm gonna hold your hand. We're gonna do this together right? Um, and figure out how you're going to start that healing process from that and rebuild your relationship if you lost that relationship with God. And I think that was one of my major things was building that relationship and talking to him. I had a stranger I never met before that came to me and I, she, I, she didn't know what I was going on. I was leaving the store and I guess she could feel something. And she came to me and asked me because she hugged me. And I let this woman hug me and she said, do you know that you can go in a room by yourself and you can yell at God and you can tell him what you're feeling and he has grace and he's not going to judge you for it because he already know. Do you know you can get that off of your chest? And no one's ever told me that I can yell and scream at God before, you know, just get it off my chest. Right. So, you know, one day I just yelled, I yelled, I might even said some cuss words and everything. And I was just angry and I didn't realize that that made me feel a little bit better and had me open to actually hear people and listen to people. Cause I remember people coming to me talking about God when I was going through this process and I asked them to leave me alone. I slammed the door in somebody's face. I was angry, you know? And after I've done that, it kind of opened things up to where I was able to open the Bible again. I was able to listen to Pastor Jakes and what he was saying. I was able to open some things up and try to find why did he allow me to take this journey? So January 2nd was just the topping, the, 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 I think the end to it with me saying, okay, I'm taking this journey for a reason. I'm hearing all these people that's connecting to me. And sometimes he's connecting people that's going through the similar situation I've been through. And I turned my back on a few people because I'm thinking like, God, why are they coming to me telling me this? This is, I, I, I'm i not, I'm not strong enough for this yet. You know what I'm saying? Cause you're still emotional. And when you're emotional and things, am I capable of helping these people and this person? And I still have this open hole here, you know, how can, am I able to help them? So I had to get to the space where I'm at today, where I don't care what anyone say. They didn't go through that journey with me. When I was in pain, they was not there. So I'm kind of like to that. He put me in this in this in this part now where I'm just living and I'm able to take everything that I've been through and able to help some other people, you know, so um, I'm comfortable in my skin. I'm comfortable with whatever people say. It doesn't even bother me anymore. I figured, hey, I've been through some of the worst things in my life. Why do I care? <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, what you got to say, sure. you know, the time so, has changed. <laughs> so I thought I had to get into that space and just be my authentic self and just either like me or love me either way. I'm okay. You know, um, type of environment. And I think God put me there for the injustice part, but also in the healthcare piece too. You know, it's times that I had to hold someone's hand while they were dying. If I was in that emotional state, I wouldn't be able to do that. You know, when I first started working in the ICU and PCU, I would cry like, oh my God, you know, I'm in the break room. And I had to say, Iris, tough it up. This family needs you. This person needs you. You don't have time for this. You already been through a lot. You got through it get through this. So that was a journey for me. So I'm, you know, I, I, in, you know, in going through the injustice, I think some piece I'm working on is um, people always tell me I didn't have a lot of feelings. So my brain don't always connect that someone's is needing sympathy right away or someone's needing my help right away. Sometimes it could be days down the line. I'll call someone and say, Hey, you just told me this happened. I kind of brushed it off. I do apologize. It just registered to me. I was watching a show or driving or something and realized, oh, my God, she needed me. Um, so, you know, don't don't um, you know, I just want people to know, like, we don't know what someone else is going through in their life. Don't just judge certain things from them. Um, you know, have grace with people because you just don't know. So I think that's why I'm able to be authentic. I think that's why people are able to open up and talk to me because I'm the people's person. I'm, I'm them whatever some situations they've been through I already been through it I went through it so I'm understanding and then I have staff people working for me so they come to me with all types of things so you got to be able to to treat them a certain way um you got to be able to have grace on that you know because some of those things I probably would explode it but I'm able to say okay let's sit down let's figure out how we can work through this you know so um I thank God for his grace and mercy and thank him for giving me another opportunity another chance to be um and and not get really given up on me like I thought so um just giving me this opportunity to be able to help other people okay I'm unfortunately we are at our time um do me a favor and tell people where they can um contact you for your services and then the book again all right um again I'm Dr. Iris Wright on social media um I'm on Instagram on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn. You can go to my website, iris, I-R-I-S dash right, W-R-I-G-H-T dot com. If you want to purchase any of my books, um, I am um, Call for Authors for Injustice Volume 3. We're closing up on Injustice Volume 2 in our celebration for Injustice Volume 2 in the beautiful Williamsburg, Virginia. It's February the 10th from 3 to 8. All right. Thank you so very much for everything. Our speaker challenged our perceived notions and ignited a fire of awareness and change in relationship to injustice. The key is taking the first step. Remember to look for me in various venues. I love to have coffee and talk. As always, have a blessed and fruitful day.